person who has had the eyes of their hearts opened by the Holy Spirit concerning their true condition, what they are by nature, the words of the psalm that we just sang are always fresh. Although sometimes they are especially refreshing to hear that he will revive and strengthen you. Maybe this evening you feel especially weakened. You feel very much so that unless the Lord revives you, you will not persevere in his calling. And thankfully, he works through his word, and you are in the right place to receive that. Now, I invite you, if you haven't done so, turn with me in your Bible to the New Testament, to the first gospel, to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Now, we were in Matthew 13 last week, in fact, a passage directly connected with one from tonight. If you weren't here, last week we began a new series. We began a series looking at the parables of Jesus. And our passage last week was one where the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Why do you speak in these stories? And we saw that he did so for a very good reason. The parables are spiritual stories, God-inspired stories, that both conceal, they hide, but they also reveal, they show forth realities about the kingdom of Christ, realities about being a member of Christ's heavenly government. And for that reason, they require the Holy Spirit's work within us to receive them rightly. Now, the story, the parable that prompted their question is the one that we are going to examine this evening. The one that got them wondering, what is he talking about? Unlike most of the parables, this parable comes with an explanation from Jesus himself. And it's one of the reasons why, typically, when churches go through the parables, we start with the so-called parable of the sower. Because here you get Jesus himself explaining, and it acts as something of a key for many of the parables. So let's hear together the parable that made them wonder why he spoke this way, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 13. Jesus is speaking in the context here. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's ask the Lord to give us such ears even now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for granting us an audience with Jesus Christ. We thank you that through the scriptures you have preserved for us his explanation of this parable. Nevertheless, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work even this very moment, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would soften anyone who is hard, that you would clear away those distractions which cling to us like thorns. Help us, Lord. Cause us to be receptive. Make us good soil. 
For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, not every parable comes with an explanation, but thankfully this one does have an explanation from Jesus about its meaning. What then is the seed? When he says that a sower goes out, a a person scattering seed, what is the seed that is being flung out? Verse 18, he tells us that it represents the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom. Now, in the context here, he's talking about the announcement made at first among the Jews in the promised land that their Messiah had come. And this Messiah was Jesus Christ. He was the anointed one, the king whom God had sent and placed among them. And for Jews at that time, that was incredibly exciting. It's not astounding that you have thousands of people coming out, especially as they hear that he's working miracles and that he's teaching, that he's some kind of prophet because they had been expecting the king to come. And they begin to hear the word of the kingdom about what this citizenship with Christ is going to be like. And the word then is the declaration that Christ is giving about the nature of his kingdom. Now, if you've been around Christianity for any time at all, you're aware that it's not exactly what they were expecting. But this is the word that was coming, and it's an apt metaphor. Because think of the way that God has caused the word to be scattered broad across the whole world. People of every sort hear this message. It's like seed in that sense. And it's also seed in the way that it has the potential, God blessing it, to produce a response, to bring about life and fruit, even as we heard this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. God works through the message of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he shall do, in order to bring about salvation. We should never lose sight of that. That is where the power is. You can have all the gardening gear in the world. If you do not have the precious seed, you have no hope of a harvest. The power that God has ordained is through the message of the kingdom and of Christ But the focus in this parable is not on the seed so much. You have to appreciate that to get it. The focus in the parable is not so much on the seed, but on the different responses that the seed meets with. In this parable, two of the four responses are a stalk without any fruit. Only one of the four has the fruit that is in keeping with everlasting life. And so we should not be surprised when the word is preached and you think, well, I was expecting that to be effective, but instead it seems to garner very little response. We were warned of this in the first place. But that does raise a question. Why doesn't the word produce an equal response everywhere? Why doesn't the word have the same effect upon the person next to you as perhaps it has upon you? Or one person over to your left. There are different ways we can answer this. The scripture does speak from a variety of perspectives about it. We can be certain though it has nothing to do with deficiency in the seed. Hear what it says in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 11. The Lord says, My word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
God's word will not fail to achieve what he has purposed, but there are things which the Lord has purposed which are secret to him, providential things. He's revealed to us his moral will, the things that he approves of or disapproves of, things he's called us to do. But his secret work is hidden. In this parable, the focus is on more of our perspective. That is, Jesus describes the kind of conditions where we can expect there is going to be eternal life. And in this sense, it serves as an alarm for us. It's kind of like you could go into any hardware store and grab a bag of seed, and it's very common. You'll see, especially with grass seed, you'll find that there will be a statement of germination rates. It'll say maybe, you know, 98% germination rate. With the gospel, there is 100% germination rate relative to God's secret purposing. But relative to human conditions as we see it, there's a warning here that we should not expect there to be eternal life where there are certain conditions. When I say conditions, I mean of the human heart. And in this way, Jesus is raising an alarm in order not that you would somehow make yourself by your own strength the right kind of soil, but that you would seek the grace of the gardener to prepare the soil, to change you. The soil does not change itself at the end of the day. So while God does use means, this parable is all about raising an alarm where there should be a sense of danger. Do you have a part in everlasting life? And in turn, this should help inform the way that you relate to other people too. Whether or not you are concerned for other people. Whether or not you believe and associate them with everlasting life. So as we consider this passage, we're going to look at it under the four natural headings that are here at each of the different kinds of soil that Jesus speaks about. In the first place, think about this though. Especially you children. I wonder if any of you have in your backyard or have seen raised garden beds. A raised garden bed, that's where they often will take planks and they put them around into a rectangular shape. They raise them up about 12, maybe as high as 24 inches, and they fill that with soil. Why do they do that? What's the purpose of a raised garden bed? There are several different reasons. Simply, you can say, well, they look nice, and some people think, I want one just for that reason. But also, it's not as laborious. You don't have to bend over as far. But arguably, the main reason for using a raised garden bed has to do with soil preparation and maintenance. It doesn't get compacted. If it's on the ground, the tendency, if people walk over, it gets pressed down. The beauty of a raised garden bed is that the soil stays loose and the plants are able to grow through. The roots go down much more easily. The very first area that Jesus describes the word falling upon is the hard path. Verse 19, look what he says as he explains this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. In other words, this is the first condition that the word finds. It finds a person whose heart is so heavily compacted, so hardened by sin and unbelief that there is no apparent response to the word. The seed just sits there on the top like birds come down and just pick it up because it doesn't fall into anywhere. There isn't even a little fissure, a tiny crack into which the word would go and produce a response. And so there are people who are so hardened in this way. Verse 19 says that they do not understand it. But it's important that we understand it within context. Last week, I drew attention to the fact 
the understanding here is not merely intellectual understanding. It has to do with what we call culpable ignorance. Culpable meaning that you're actually guilty for this. Romans sheds light on this. The book of Romans in chapter 1 speaks of people suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's like having a beach ball in the pool and you push it down and then it wants to pop back up. You know, push it down. Is it not the case that at times we have suppressed our knowledge, our conscientiousness of the truth in order to carry on with sin? I remember reading a story uh, of a, a man who had plotted a certain crime, but he had a habit of prayer. And he didn't have this ordinary habit of crime. Something has come up, he's going to commit this crime. And he intentionally scheduled his crime so as to occur before his prayer. Because he felt that if I start praying, I'm, I'm going to have conviction. I won't be able to follow through the crime. People suppress truth. Here, when Jesus says that they do not understand it, He's talking about a hardening that comes through the love of sin. And when many people hear the true word of the kingdom, they're not just hearing things that sound like Christianity, but the real deal. They hear the fact that Jesus demands total sovereignty over every aspect of your life from now until forever. And that bounces off of them. They don't want anything to do with this. And simply here, This person will never bear life as long as they remain in this condition. And so I put it to you because whatever you look like on the outside, you know your heart. I do not. Does the word find any place in your heart? Or are you utterly hardened to it? If you find that you have true hardness, all I can do is... I. I, can't be better than my master. Christ in this very passage tells the disciples that he does not pour his energies into those who are utterly indifferent. But he grants a warning. And the warning in this passage is that in the end they are separated unto judgment. There's a second type of ground in this parable, of course, and that's the seed that falls on rocky ground. I imagine quite a few of us here have at one time or another overseeded lawns. That seems to be Our way of celebrating seasons in Phoenix is to bring about, we don't all have the leaves and all of that, so instead we kind of have a faux season. It's the season of ryegrass. I happen to like the season, but I've learned that there's a lot of wastage in the the use of the grass seed. Because if, unless you're going to really carefully drop it in just all the right places, as you scatter grass seeds, some lands on your lawn, Others of it may land on your neighbor's yard, and your neighbor's yard in this instance is gravel. And so it doesn't go down deep. It's rocky ground. They haven't cultivated it. It doesn't have any depth. And here, Jesus is using an analogy like that to represent people who have a shallow self-interest in the kingdom. Their heart is shallowly interested in the kingdom. Hear what he says in verse 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He immediately receives it with joy. In the context, remember, the people he's speaking to are Jews who have longed for the kingdom to come for a whole variety of reasons. Not least, they would love to be done with Roman taxation. These are real people like us, and the frequency with which that comes up in the Gospels is 
surprising on one hand, then it's not surprising. They would love to be done with occupation. They would love for the kingdom to come in and get rid of all of their problems in this life. And there's an excitement about the king being here. Also, when a person who is unconverted hears that Christ calls us to a moral life of holiness, in their flesh they might think they have what it takes. And they are excited to demonstrate that, to be a good person. Even so, today, many people are attracted to aspects of Christianity. This parable exists to challenge you. What is it that draws you? What is it that is giving you a sense of joy among the church? Is it to be involved in something bigger than yourself? I appeal especially to the younger people among us. It is very tempting to be primarily driven in your youth, not by a spiritual sense of need for Christ to be delivered from your sin unto true holiness, not by a desire to know the living God, but to simply fit in with the community. Any of these things can drive us, or it could be a desire to escape from hell, but not to escape from the things that brought about judgment, namely sin. Such a person, according to verse 21, has, quote, no root in himself. Verse 5, no depth of soil. Because the only issues they were dealing with were of this earth, they never went deeper to reach something from beyond this earth. Because their problems were of this world, they did not reach to something otherworldly, even to Jesus Christ, who is pierced in from outside, who is God. If your problems that you're seeking to address through Christianity are of this life only, you are going to discover you have a Christianity and a salvation of this life only. Consequently, look what happens in verse 21. He endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. Now, first notice, he endures for a while. If you have a seed and you drop it in shallow ground like that, there will be a certain amount of latent moisture, just the water that was in the seed. Once the natural moisture has been used up, then the plant dies because it doesn't have access through its roots down to other moisture. And this person, once they encounter real challenges, they wither. In their own context, not long after Jesus gives this message, within just a few short years, everyone professing faith in him is being hunted for their life. And then they begin to fall away. Today, it's often the case that those who are raised in the church or who make a uh, profession of faith early in their adulthood, they simply don't realize what they are going to experience when it's costly. And it will become more costly, perhaps, in your life. Some of us have experienced this. Family or friends who draw a line and say, if you believe those things, if you will not simply love me, but you actually have to approve my choices, if you won't do that, then I don't want anything to do with you. Then there's a withering. Because we live in a time of relative peace, however, and of relative lack of persecution in this land, every one of us has to give special heed what is actually driving us. And so we ask the question, What fruit do I bear that is not for myself? Is there a real depth to my devotion? We've seen these first two. We come to the third. The third is likened to a plant that starts to grow, but then it gets choked out. Picture that. Maybe you plant a tomato vine. 
but you don't plant it in your raised garden bed and carefully protect it from the weeds. You just plant it right among your weeds. And you don't tend to the weeds frequently enough, and they begin to choke out, to outcompete the tomato vine. And so you've got a vine, but you never get the tomatoes. Even so, Jesus is drawing a comparison to the way that some people receive the word, and at first there's a kind of response where you expect they seem to be on a track towards lasting fruitfulness. Again, these parables aren't meant to be a a snapshot of only one point in life, but it's characteristic of a whole life. This person seems on a track to be found among those who are fruitful at harvest time, but eventually the pleasures, the pursuits, the problems of this life crowd out concern for the kingdom. Priorities shift. Look at me at verse 22. Jesus says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Again, the Lord is not saying that his word lacks power if he wills it to do otherwise. He's describing the ordinary conditions we expect to find his supernatural work in. He's challenging you, is this you? Do you have a reasonable expectation that there will be fruit in your life? Not unless there's a change if this describes you. Notice he doesn't say that they necessarily cease their profession. Rather, the word is choked out before they become truly fruitful. Maybe you weren't here this morning. But that fruitfulness is especially associated with obeying Christ as Christ, loving the church as the church. Not just being a good, a decent person. What is it that's choking it out? Two things he mentions here. First, the cares of this world. The cares of this world are not necessarily things that you should avoid or neglect. The need to put food on the table, that's a legitimate care. The need to study for your vocation, legitimate. The need for a certain amount of physical rest as well as spiritual rest, legitimate. But the problem is when our priorities are such that they continually crowd out and prevent the right reception and response to the word. And we see this in a variety of ways, but one of the most common is for people either at the time when they are going off to school, and it's the first time that perhaps they are out of the oversight of their parents, and they had a habit that was reinforced by a lot of accountability. And then they go off to school and they find out, oh, college is a lot harder, a lot harder than high school. And it takes a lot of time. And they find that maybe the best day, the only day they have to study is Sunday because Saturday, of course, they have to maintain their social life. We get it. We've all been there. Heed the parable. Life is built in a series of choices. And you can tell yourself, well, I'll get off the train at this point and go over there. But no, the track is set and you are rolling. There are only so many places to get off. And when the Lord lays before you the fact that you are neglecting the means that he has given and the things that he's called you to, this is the time to weed, to pull these things down. He mentions also the deceitfulness of riches. What does he mean about the deceitfulness of riches? Riches are deceitful in a number of ways. They're not inherently evil, thank God. But they are deceitful. Partly because of the way that very gradually 
they can have a harmful effect. Here again, they begin to choke out the priority of the kingdom. That Christ is first. The things he calls us to is first. Everything else is second. You stop seeing yourself as a steward. You start seeing yourself as a benefactor. No, it's not yours. He gives you freedom to choose how much you'll give away with joy. But you are a servant of the Lord. You are not above others. You are beneath others. That's part of the kingdom. They are also deceitful because they are respectable. Very rarely will you encounter someone who gives you grief over doing well for yourself. If they do, it's probably because they haven't. But everybody tends to aspire to more. And as that is the case, they will generally not hold you as accountable as each of us needs. I invite you to turn with me and look at one passage in 1 Timothy. I bring this up with some detail because in my judgment of these various kinds of soil in an established church, this is the one that we are in most danger of falling into, being choked out by the cares and the riches of this world. If you're here tonight, arguably it's not because you are so hard that you don't want to hear the word, unless somebody made you come here. If you've come here tonight, I know most of you, and I know that you haven't just been here for a day. And so you are unlike the people who just sprung up for a time and then go right off. So naturally, our focus should be primarily on this third category. See what it says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. The apostle speaking to a young pastor says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now, notice he doesn't say those who have riches are in sin. But it's about motivation. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. A snare being hidden. You don't expect the trap to be there. If you think, well, I I get it, I know where the trap is at. No, you're missing the point. It's more subtle than that. Into many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And you never would have desired those things if you didn't have more. It wouldn't even cross your mind to indulge certain pleasures, passions, hobbies, interests. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And it can look so innocent. It has looked so innocent. I'm telling you, I've known a person who seemed like they were going to be a a great light in the church, and for a time they did seem to shine. And then that person, through a combination, and I'm not trying to single any person out here if this is something that you do, through a combination of their children in sports, like three Sundays out of four, through a combination of that person being really interested in astronomy, and I take that personally, because I I get it. They were good. They want to go out, and the best night is that night, and the only one they have free is Saturday night, because things don't work out. And over a period of two years, I saw this person just less and less having to do with the things of the Lord. And then I'm It may not go this way for you. It's a bit dramatic, I realize. But at some point, I remember that person writing to our consistory and telling us, I just didn't feel the need for Christian faith anymore. I found a new group based on all of my hobbies. And it raises that question, what was driving them originally? And what is driving you? The point here, don't misunderstand, isn't that by reprioritizing, you can be saved 
in and of yourself with that. It's describing the characteristics of where God is at work so that you say, God, work in me, if that's not the case. God, work in me. It's not about your strength. But then see what it says in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Note, flee the temptation, the yearning to be rich of itself, not necessarily flee having any kind of possessions. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Verse 17, as for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the Lord warns us in this parable. He calls us to an alarm. Are we being choked out in the right priority of the kingdom, the evidence of the Spirit's work? Finally, we come to the fourth kind of soil. And Jesus simply describes it as good soil. How do you know if your heart is good soil? It's very simple in the context of this parable. You will produce fruit. If you're not producing fruit, it's not good soil. But if you do, and again, I haven't raised at this point how much, because Jesus is going to say some 30, some 60, some 100. At this point, just ask, do I have fruit? Do I find at times a sincere desire to serve Christ because he's Christ? Do I have a desire to love my brothers and sisters in the Lord because they are brothers and sisters in the Lord? Not because of what they bring to the table, not because of how funny they are, not because of how they enrich my life with their talents, abilities, jobs, etc. Do I love them because they are beloved of Christ? If those things are in you and are growing, then you can say there's good soil. There must be good soil. Genesis 1 and 2 talk about God creating the world and how the different things he makes reproduce after their kind. And where the seed of the word goes, the word of the kingdom, it will reproduce after its kind. It produces kingdom concerns. That's what it does where there is good soil. How do you gain this good soil? I mentioned at the outset and several times since, I want this to stick with you. Good soil is all about preparation. I know we have members here from Idaho and they tell me that there's a place where you don't have to prepare the soil. That may be true of a state, though I doubt it. It is not true of any human being. There is no Idahoan when it comes to salvation. There is nobody who does not need to be transformed. By nature, the scripture describes us as hard-hearted, as darkened. Verse 23 says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit, and it yields, in one case, a hundredfold, and another 60, and another 30. But he does so, or she does so, only because the gardener has been doing a gracious work. Think especially the region, and it was no Idaho that Jesus was living in as he's saying these things. The region that he's in, what was involved in bringing forth fruit from the land? Much tilling in an age before any machines that are powered by gas or electric. That kind of hard work. 
And then think of all the watering, the fertilizing, all of this pre-industrial. There's a lot of work that that goes into bringing forth fruit. Even on a local garden, it's true. Humanly, Humanly speaking, God uses a whole variety of means, but the point here is to drive us to the sense that it is the Lord who does this work. I don't ask you to turn to this passage, but hear this passage. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. God can work in you. And if this evening you feel, oh, there is, I am that rocky soil, I am that hard ground. The Lord is the gardener. The point of the parable is to not look to yourself, it's to look to him. Use the means he appoints in faith. This parable is not meant to exhaust everything that can be said about anything. God uses means, but use them in faith that he is the one who can transform the soil. And so we've seen these four ways of receiving the word. I put it to you again. Which of them are you? Are you a combination? That's possible. Are you so hard that you don't have any desire at all to consider these things? Know what your end will be. Consider it at least. Throughout the ages, millions, billions of Christians have carried forward the word of Jesus. And will you not give even a second thought to the reality of something? When we talk about everlasting life, It's worth taking time. I won't appeal. How can I? I can't pierce your heart. But know that the scripture cannot lie. You will die and go to hell forever unless you are changed. Are you rocky soil? Are you rocky soil? Are you superficially excited about the things of the church and you want to be involved? I want you to understand something. It's possible to spring up quick when you're not spending your energy going down. And sometimes Christians get down on themselves because their growth seems so slow, especially in the first years, maybe the first five years that they're a Christian. And they wonder, why don't I have all the seeming fruit of that person? They seem so confident. They've got abilities. They're just, they're racing forward. It takes a lot of energy to go down with the roots And the Lord does cultivate first sincere contrition, humility, brokenness. These are the things that come down and hold on to Christ and the gospel before you get significant upward growth of the real and lasting kind. Don't be discouraged if you start out slow. Are you being gradually choked by thorns and weeds? Remove the overgrowth. Pull at it. Don't stop. Anyone who's garden knows that it's never ending. You just keep pulling at it, but do so trusting in grace. Hear together one verse finally, and then we'll close in prayer. Isaiah 27, verse 2 through 4, speaking of the promises in Christ. In that day, there will be a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. 
I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Only let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Don't picture the Lord tonight as some angry farmer coming at you with a hoe as he says these sayings. The parable is all about his grace. He has power you don't have. You are soil. Receive that and trust it. And may he grow us to bear good fruit. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and we ask you, please nurture us unto greater fruitfulness. Help us, Lord, not to be overwhelmed with our deficiencies, to know that you are sufficient. Transform us, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.